The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the FT columnist Gideon Rackman, whose new book is The Age of the Strongman, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. And it's an even more timely book, I think, than it was probably when it was conceived. But Gideon, start with, can you say what you mean by a strongman and particularly why why we are in a, in a distinctive age of the strongman rather than seeing them as a sort of hardy perennial? Yeah, no, I think that's a very good question. It's one I had to sort of pose to myself before I got going on the book. Because as you say, I mean, probably throughout human history, people have lived in autocratic regimes. You know, most of the time people aren't living in democracies. And there have always been strongman leaders around. But I think that we are... The reason I think we're in a new age of the strongman is I think there was a period for maybe about 20, 30 years, starting in the late 70s, when this style of autocratic, very personality-driven leadership went out of fashion, at least in the major power centres, so that I think it stops in China with the, the death of Mao. China moves towards a more collective style of leadership. Stops in Russia, uh, Soviet Union, after the death of Stalin. The, the Communist Party, you know, for all its faults, was a sort of collective leadership. And in India, you know, you, you have... In the globalisation era, kind of rather laid back leaders, people like Manmohan Singh and so on. And certainly in the West, we had strong leaders. We had a, a Thatcher figure or Reagan figure, but they weren't what I would call strongman leaders. Because I think the strongmen, there, there are many characteristics, but one of them is that they place themselves and their own personal authority, intellect at the centre of what, what government should all be about. And as more important really than institutions. So... Although, say, a Thatcher was a strong leader, she didn't really believe in breaking the law, you know, and when she, when she was overruled or she was voted out by the Tory party, she left power. So she was an institutionalist. I think these strongman leaders who cropped up all over the world are people who believe above all in their own personal authority. And they start coming back with Putin in 2000. And then, as I say in the book, you get a whole rash so that by 2016, you even have a strongman leader in the United States in the form of Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, I mean, this idea of the personal leader and the one who, I mean, I, th- I think you say in your book, you know, they come to identify themselves with the nation very strongly. And that's obviously a kind of core characteristic of these strong men. I mean, you kind of go back to Fraser's Golden Bough and you've got, you know, the Fisher King, the idea that the king is sort of existential with the nation and with the with the fertility and the, the very blood and soil of the nation. I mean... Is this, do you think, a kind of, effectively, we're just after a liberal democratic blip, an institutional blip, we're kind of tapping into something more psychologically, mythologically fundamental? I mean, is it sort of ineradicable human instinct that leads us there? I'd hope not ineradicable, but I think you're, you're right that, you know, obviously monarchy has been around forever, you know, and in a sense, these people are monarchs, certainly the most extreme versions of them. I mean, I think that the thing about Putin, for example is that he, although in some ways nostalgic for the Soviet Union, 
really is much more like a Russian czar than a Soviet general secretary. And I remember talking just before the invasion to kind of friend in Moscow and said, look, we know that, you know, in any comparable situation in the West, if it was the White House and they were thinking about an invasion, there'd be hawks and doves and, you know, people arguing it out. Is the same thing happening in the Kremlin? And he said no, because basically anyone who disagrees with Putin will have been forced out a long time ago. And he is a czar, so he has advisors and they will speak, perhaps be a bit guardedly. But in the end, it's all about his decision. And I think that one of the reasons that he has, you know, basically gone crazy and invaded Ukraine is that he has come to, over the course of 20 years, and I think it's one of the weaknesses in the whole strongman model is the longer you're in power, the more liable you are to succumb to megalomania. He has come to identify his own personal fate and the fate of the country as almost sort of indissoluble. So I think he felt increasingly threatened by what he regarded as Western-inspired colour revolutions around the world, you know, particularly in Ukraine, but in, in lots of countries around the borders of Russia. And I think he began to really identify his fate and the fate of the system he represents with the fate of the nation. Yeah. Now, you do identify Putin, you know, rather presciently in, in your book as the sort of, you know, ground zero of this this new wave. He's very emulated by a number of the other and admired by a number of the people who've come after and seem to be in his mould. Why do you think it started in Russia? And what do you think the sort of significance of Putin's kind of position in the, the genealogy of the modern strongman is? I think it is significant that it started in Russia, although maybe we're only seeing that in retrospect, because, of course, Russia was the adversary during the Cold War. It was the other system. And for the 90s, we felt that they were both kind of in a state of collapse in which they could be more or less ignored, but also, more importantly, wanted to be like us. That was the assumption, that their defeat was so total that they would really just embrace liberal democracy. And Putin, to be fair, says, you know, plays to that illusion. He says, just after he's elected, well, he's appointed and then elected in a slightly rigged election, that we're showing that we can have all the attributes of a modern liberal democratic state, free elections, free media and so on. And Bill Clinton meets him and says, this is the guy who's going to turn Russia into a proper democracy. And then I think that it emerges really over the course of the next decade that that's really not what Putin's about. I think there's an element of self-delusion in the West where we don't want to sort of really take on board what he did in Chechnya, the arrests of the oligarchs, the closing down of free media, because we're still very attached to our own end of history paradigm. Plus, there's a lot of money to be made in Russia. So people think, well, yeah, it's a bit rough, but we can see, you know, it's heading in basically the right direction. Constructive engagement. Yeah, it's really only around sort of 2007-8, I think it becomes apparent that, you know, Putin gives a big speech in Munich in 2007 where he really abandons the idea that Russia and the West have a common narrative about the end of the Cold War and, and so on. And it's a very angry anti-Western speech. And then in 2008, he invades Georgia. But even then, we don't totally get the message because our, our efforts are to sort of reset things with Russia. We keep trying to do this. But anyway, so he is important. And I think the interesting thing that happens is though a lot of people in the West, our response is kind of, or at least the government's response is to either say he's irrelevant and he'll lose... That's Angela Merkel's response. She says he's he's a 19th century figure in the 21st century. In other words, he's out of his time. He doesn't understand how to operate, you know, poor old Putin. But then there's uh, arrives a whole group of emulators. 
of people who actually think, you know what, what he's doing is really quite cool. I'd like to be a bit like that, to stick it to the liberals, to, you know, be a kind of macho leader, traditionalist, nationalist. And there is a bunch of people, including in the West. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's sort of conciliary, says after the Syria invasion, now that's what you call leadership. Nigel Farage has a similar reaction, asked which politician in the world he most admired. He named Putin, although he quickly said, you know, I don't approve of what he's doing. But, you know, the way he handles Syria, that was just brilliant, wasn't it? And then, you know, once you get out of the West, there's a whole bunch of leaders who think that Putin has shown the way, really. A Duterte in the Philippines is a bit of a thug, says, you know, my real hero is Putin. But you can you can go through them. And I think even in China, there's a sense that, ah, Okay, at last there's a strong anti-Western figure who's not just going to take instruction from Washington, who's going to push back and who has this kind of macho strongman style, which is actually much more appealing to a Xi Jinping than liberal democracy, which he rejects out of hand. How much do you think that, I mean, you, you talk about this almost a kind of bromance quality to the emulation. I mean, how much are the dynamics at work here as you see it? kind of, if you like, geopolitical? And how much are they kind of psychological? How much is it the manness, if you like, of the strong man? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a bit of that. I mean, and I think that the Russians, you know, until they really blew it with Ukraine, and I think there are very few people in the West now who would admire them, were quite astutely played to a lot of Western cultural conservatives who are not happy with, you know whatever it is, minority rights, feminism, trans rights is a big thing, you know, with a lot of people in the West who think this is crazy. And here's Putin saying, you know, it's crazy. And they think, oh, well, at least he's right on that. You know, so that and that that is a very traditional sort of, well, it's an assertion of very traditional social values, the family, the man at the front of it. And that's, if you want that, that's Putin saying, yeah, that's the way it should be. So there's a whole kind of group of cultural conservatives around the world who respond to that and who look at, say, America and say, well, this is, to use the phrase, political correctness gone mad, you know, and Putin's uh, represents the opposite. So, yeah, I think that this is an argument that's been having in different forms all over the world. And for the, those who want to assert traditional macho values, well, Putin and then the whole bunch of strongman leaders who follow him are their kind of champions. And, you know, at times it can tip over into, you know, very open misogyny. So I remember there was an Italian politician, a woman who said to me that Salvini, who's the leader, you know, was actually deputy prime minister of Italy and a big Putin fan to the extent that he even posed in Red Square in a Putin T-shirt, would wave around an inflated sex doll with this poor woman's name you know, written on it from the stage to sort of deride his female political opponent. So that was where, where it could go, you know, at times. Now, there's a certain amount of, you know, quite touching sheepishness in the way, because you've met a lot of these characters. You've been writing about them in the course of their rise, and you sort of say here and there, you know, hold my hands up, somebody, it was me, wrote a column just when they came to power saying, you know, we're going to give these guys a chance. This will be what turns the game around. And as you make clear, you're not alone in that. You know, lots and lots of centrist, sort of liberal, democratic-type newspaper writers in the West have tended, and indeed political leaders, have tended to applaud a lot of these characters, saying they look like the future of liberalism, and they come out, as Putin did, parroting their, their enthusiasm for liberal democratic values, and then they kind of turn again and again on every continent. 
Why do you think it follows that pattern? Is it pure kind of entryism, or do you think there's something that they change their views, or do they just show their pure colours? I think it's a mix of all of that. You know, I think in the early 2000s, you know, there is such a thing as a sort of dominant ideological discourse. Sorry, I sound a bit sort of Marxist there, but you know what I mean. That yeah. everybody was talking the language of liberalism and democracy, and if you wanted to be taken seriously as a leader, you tended to do that. So that Erdogan in Turkey, he has his own reasons for it, but he presents himself, and it's very effective in the West, as a champion, the guy who can reconcile Islam and democracy. And there's a huge audience for that in the West because it's just after 9-11. Everyone's, you know, running around saying, oh, my God, you know, how are we going to live with the Muslim world? And here's this guy leading a successful modern Muslim state who is a devout Muslim, but says, I want to join the European Union. I want to be a Democrat. And so everybody says, hallelujah. And they kind of ignore the more troubling stuff so that he had, for example, once said that democracy is a tram that you ride until you get to your destination, which might have been a bit of a clue as to where he was coming from. And he was a classic sort of swaggering figure. But I think that he also changes in power. So he may have believed some of it initially. Then he would feel a sense of rejection because it becomes clear the European Union actually doesn't really want Turkey as a member. The French and the Germans, for their own domestic reasons, just think, you know, this is not on. There's a fallout over the war in Syria, but he also becomes increasingly megalomaniacal as he stays on and on and on. And I think he is a natural autocrat. So, you know, it became apparent to me by, you know, repeated visits to Turkey that the kind of happy talk about him as this great Democrat was just not true. I suppose one of my kind of I'm hesitant to say flaws, but one of the characteristics is that I tend to meet the kind of liberal professors in wherever I go, because, you know, you show up in Istanbul, Delhi, wherever, and they will sort of, and I found myself having the same conversation in place after place where they would say, you know, whether it was Delhi, it would be, they say, geez, you would not believe the kind of nationalistic stuff that Modi is whipping up, the impact it's having on the free press and so on. You know, in Washington, their equivalents were saying, God, I can't believe what Trump is doing to our country. And in Turkey, by about 2010, you were getting having that conversation in, in Turkey. And in fact, there was a guy who said to me, he was a Turk talking about his own country, but it became a sort of motto for this whole era that I kept in my head where he said, things are happening now every day that I used to think would be unimaginable. And he meant, you know, newspapers closing down, his friends having to flee the country or being arrested. So, yeah, sorry, I've rambled a bit away from your original question, but the answer is they change in office, there's a bit of deceit, and then there's sort of just changing ideological times. And I think all three of those things come together. But I do think the longer these people are in office, they're not people who generally want to give up power. And so any initial liberal democratic tendencies tend to be pushed to one side as challenges to their power emerge. Now, you do kind of yoke together in your book under the kind of strongman rubric people who've risen in, you know, what we think of as mature democracies, but also people who've come to power in places, you know, particularly Xi in China, which are, you know, essentially autocracies and have been, yeah. you know, since way back. Is there a very visible distinction between the strongmen in democracies yeah. and the strongmen in autocracies? No, it- 
a question I sort of had to wrestle with at various points in the book and that I had to ask myself as I was writing the book, you know, is this legitimate really? I mean, to have Donald Trump, and we should talk about why Boris Johnson's in the book as well, because I put him in there knowing I actually had, I was scared of the spectator reader as I put that in. I thought there's going to be a bunch of people who will pick it up and see that and throw it to one side. This is, say, this is absurd. So we should talk about that. But there is this question mark. They aren't all the same, but they are strong similarities. I think that similarities are strong enough to make them a category that you can look at. I would say that one we've already touched on, which is a politics that is very personality driven. Another is a kind of contempt for the rules in whichever context they find themselves. Third, I think, is nationalism and particular kind of nostalgic nationalism. I think that's almost the strongest characteristic, you know, so that Trump's make America great again is really something that they're all doing in their own different contexts. Xi Jinping calls it the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Putin is clearly attempting to restore lost greatness after the Soviet era. He's going back to Peter the Great, really, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah, he's a czar, and he's trying to restore the empire. Modi similarly is talking about Hindu greatness, that, you know, the Hindus were, as he saw it, kind of oppressed, not just by the British Empire, but before that by the Mughals, and, you know, this is their time. I would say, you know, even Erdogan actually looks back to the Ottoman Empire. So they're all this kind of nostalgic nationalism. And I think that's one of the points where Brexit at least touches this phenomenon, because it's about, in my view, partly saying, you know what, we've lost some of the what made us great and we need to we can get back to that. So that was one of the things that interested me. Then. I mean, the fact that to look at the ones who who've come to power in a sort of liberal, democratic, rule-bound environment. Do you think our liberals essentially just wrong about the way that the world works? No, I would hope not, but they're probably complacent about the way the world works. Actually, I, I didn't complete the answer. So, so you asked about the institutions, and I, I think that that's a very, very important thing, is that I think that a lot of these politicians have similar appeals and perhaps similar personalities but the institutional framework they're in is absolutely critical. So if you're Xi Jinping, there are very few checks and balances, and what there are, he gets rid of. So he abolishes the term limits on the Chinese presidency and writes his own thought into the Chinese constitution. The last person who did that was Mao. If you're Donald Trump, you are in a much more institutional-bound, law-governed society, but he really tests that almost to destruction with the effort to overturn the elections on January the 6th. But yeah, I think one of the things that I felt much more strongly having written the book is, gosh, institutions matter. And that healthy political systems are built not on people, but on institutions that, you know, any of us can drop dead at any moment. So you don't want your system to be built around a sort of godlike figure. You want it to be built around institutions and institutions that in the end can say, you know what, your time's up. We're going to try something else. And that comes to your question of liberalism. I think that, yeah, there was definitely a period of liberal triumphalism after the end of the Cold War. You know, I don't want to be the millionth person to stick the boot into Francis Fukuyama and end of history, but it is a bit too convenient. That that was the the moment where we thought, well, it was a very comforting moment because it was that everybody's going to have to be like us or they'll fail. That was the, the sort of lesson that people drew from the end of the Cold War is that, as Reagan put it, freedom works. And therefore, unfreedom doesn't work. And, you know, we don't really need to worry. We can integrate China into the world economy. China will become much richer. 
but they'll at some point have to become a democracy or their system will fail. And therefore, once they become a democracy, well, there won't be any threat because after all, democracies don't go to war with each other. And Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, said, you know, two countries with the McDonald's never fight each other. Well, duh. You know, that was that was sort of proved wrong in, in the Balkans. But that was the sort of simplified version. And then I think we, we found, we, if I can say liberals very broadly, found actually that each step in that argument was too complacent. It was not the case that China wouldn't succeed if it didn't become democratic. China continued to grow at 10% a year for 30 years, roughly, but actually became less inclined to liberal experimentation. And I think even if they had become democratic, the idea that democracies would, would all get on and that nationalism would disappear... Well, that's also clearly not the case, you know, so that India is a big democracy that's becoming increasingly nationalistic. Was it that we thought that there was a sort of organic coupling between democratic institutions and the free markets that created wealth and that countries, I guess, like China most obviously went, you know what, actually you can take one without the other or you can do a qualified version of it that will... Yeah, that's right. I think that, you know, when Reagan said freedom works, he meant free societies and free politics were the same thing, that basically, uh, you know, I'm still quite attached to the argument that the thing that links capitalism and democracy is choice, really, that that you have a choice at the ballot box and you have a choice in the supermarket aisle and that anyone can have a go, you know, enter politics, enter business, and the market decides, the, either the political market or the consumer market. And the reason that we felt there was a read across was that we said, OK, So if you have a constrained political system, that means constraints on freedom of speech, it means corruption, it means not having the rule of law, it means not having a functioning market, and ultimately you'll end up with an economy that doesn't function. And that was too simplified. I don't think it's totally untrue. I mean, I think that actually China may be beginning to run into trouble eventually, you know, with, say, for example, they're cracking down on the tech sector because of its political implications. Now, these are the big champions of Chinese industry, And they're not doing as well as they were because of the new political environment. But I think actually tech is a really interesting, complicating factor because when the internet first emerged, we incorporated it into this liberal narrative and said, wow, another great boost for freedom. You know, everybody can say what they like, you know, no more gatekeepers. That's great. And then I think over the last 20 years, we've thought, oh, damn, you know, actually it can also be this massive tool of social control so that you can't operate now without a smartphone. And if you've got a smartphone, the government can see everything you're doing. So it wasn't this great liberating force that we thought it might be. Yeah. Now, in the book, I mean, you don't get away without using it entirely, but you're quite cherry normally of the F word of fascism. You, you tend not to identify strong men as your basic ethno-nationalist fascist, though some of them would probably fall into that category. But you're also saying that actually there are strong men of the left in the same same way. Is there is there a sort of distinction there? Or Yeah, I mean, look, I think you're right. I mean, I, I steered clear of the word fascism because I think it's one of those words that can shut down debate rather than opening it up. People tend to use it more as a term of abuse than as a description. And although it can be a useful description, the fact that it also serves that other purpose means that, you know, maybe I was too cowardly and I should use it. I think Putin is probably tipped over into fascism now. I wouldn't really have a problem with that. And I think that one of the characteristics of fascism is that it, it's less malign characteristics, is that it 
abolishes right and left. It says, you know, it's a politics about nation, about community, about authority, and so on. And so, yes, you can have some of these strongman leaders who would identify as left, the classic. And I don't write much about him, partly, frankly, because I haven't been to Mexico that much recently. But it's AMLO, the Mexican leader. And I think Latin America has thrown up over the years a lot of these strongman leaders of the left, you know, Chavez, Castro, and AMLO, I think, fits into that. They are authoritarians, but they are authoritarians who claim to have a kind of left-wing distribution, redistributionist agenda. But they also, like the right-wing strongmen, claim a direct relationship with the people. That's a really important thing, because we talked about, you know, institutions not mattering. That's what these leaders tend to say is, Look, forget about the courts and the media, you know, they're all dishonest. It's me and the people. And that's the thing that the left and the right strongmen tend to do. Well, you mentioned AMLO. I mean, it's a peculiar instance because originally you say, you know, actually, he should have been hugely anti-Trump for, you know, reasons possibly too obvious to enumerate. And yet there obviously was some sort of kinship or sympathy or... I think so. And I think that that maybe it is because these leaders recognise something in each other. And one of the really interesting moments is Trump attempts to overturn the election. And most of the world's democratic world says, you know, don't like the look of this. AMLO is quite sympathetic. And that's partly because he had been in a couple of disputed elections that he had tried to overturn, you know, when the courts had said, no, no, you lost. And he wouldn't accept it. So that's his view. But I think that they... The thing about these leaders is that when they get together, they kind of recognise each other and they want to get up. It's this sort of mano a mano thing, you know, forget our aids, forget the institutions. You and me will sort it out together. And Trump says that to Bob Woodward. He said, you know, I really like Erdogan. The tougher and meaner they are, the better I get on with them. And indeed, Fiona Hill, who was his aide, who worked with him on Russia, said... Her conclusion was that, you know, this whole idea of has Putin blackmailing him? Has he got some money relationship with him? She said, in her view, that missed the point. The point was that Trump admired Putin. He wanted to be like Putin. Putin was the guy, you know, and he had a kind of power that Trump felt he should have, you know, that he could click his fingers and everybody would jump. And that was what Trump's view of what leadership should be about. But, I mean, that sort of prerogative idea of leadership that, you know, sort of macho sense of, you know, all the dogs, you know, sniffing the other dogs to find out who's the toughest, who's the top dog. There is, nevertheless, you, which I was kind of fascinated by, we, in a later chapter, you talk about meeting Steve Bannon, about the sort of, that there are, in some cases, ideological and sort of intellectual underpinnings to the politics of the strongman. You talk about Carl Schmidt, for instance, yeah. who seems to be a kind of pretty pivotal... He is. I mean, Bannon is, you know, an interesting figure. And I I use that word. He is genuinely interesting. I mean, I think I came to the conclusion, a bad guy. But to me, you know, you'd have an interesting chat with him. He's quite well read. He's quite funny. He's irreverent. I mean, he makes a point of cultivating journalists, including liberal journalists. He's got a sort of magpie mind. You know, it's not, I don't, I'm not sure his essays will get very high grades, you know, because it's kind of a bit all over the place. But he's borrowing from all over the place. Certainly not stupid. But he is interested in, you know, dare I say, fascist thinkers of the 30s. Julius Evola is a thinker that he was very interested in. Carl Schmidt, I don't think Bannon quite so much, but he is an important figure. I mean, actually, I once said to the German ambassador in Washington, 
Do you think Bannon's read Carl Schmidt? Because like a lot of what he's doing seems quite Schmidt-like. And he said, yes, yes, I think he probably has. And I said, well, why do you think that? He said, because I gave him a copy of it to read. I thought it would interest him. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> but, but anyway, Schmidt, for, you know, it's actually a figure relatively new to me. He wasn't on the reading list when I was doing the history of political thought. Interestingly, he really is now, even in sort of mainstream universities. If you go to Harvard, Cambridge, whatever, kids will be writing essays on him. But he is really the biggest theorist of, he's the sort of anti-liberal theorist. He is the person who doesn't believe in institutions, who thinks that everything is about political power and that those who talk about the law or about the free media or whatever are trying to deceive you, that politics is about who controls power. And he also believes in... Is Lenin's talkative the sort of who-whom thing? Yeah, yeah. And also friend-enemy is his other thing. that he, I think he says at some point tell me, uh, you know, who your enemy is and I can explain your politics to you. And that is also very strongman style, that they tend to say, you know, there is a group out there that is frustrating the people, whether it is, you know, Hillary Clinton followers or, you know, in Britain, Remainer, deep state types, and that they need to be beaten. And so it's a kind of friend-enemy thing rather than bringing people together. And Schmidt suddenly there became a huge vogue for him. And one of the things that really got my sort of antenna going was when I was in China, actually, and talking to a very nationalist guy who I kind of use as a sounding board who runs an institution, China Institute at Fudan University in Shanghai. And he had just invited Alexander Dugin to stay with, to, to there, who's a great sort of Russian nationalist theorist. And actually, I did use the F word in that case. I said, isn't Dugin a bit of a fascist? And he said... Oh, I don't know about that, but he's a huge follower of Carl Schmidt. And I said, what do you mean by that? So, you know, what, what in Schmidt interests both of you? And he said, well, I guess everything is political. Like, there is no non-political sphere. Anyway, so I then discovered that there's a big vogue for Schmidt in China. There's a lot of people studying Schmidt because he is the theorist of illiberalism, the theorist of the, the guy who derides liberalism and who justifies the state dominating everything. And I then kept noticing it, you know, in the way one does, once you sort of notice one. So I was then back in Britain talking to some uh, theorist, some political scientist at Cambridge, and he was saying, you know, it's really weird. I keep, he was this Carl Schmitt specialist. I keep getting doctoral applications from students in China who want to come and study Carl Schmitt at Cambridge. So there was this vogue uh, coming through. And I, th I think, yeah, Schmitt is a figure who pays attention. And just this idea that politics, you know, that, that comes in your case, when you're talking about Schmidt from from some time ago and from you know a different political era, does that in some ways meet kind of around the back the much derided sort of postmodernist contention that there is nothing that's uninflected by power? You know the sort of Foucaultian idea, not that there's no such thing as an external reality, but that all of our representations of it are you know our discourses are all absolutely shaped by power. Totally. I think so. I mean, I think that's why, you know, far right, far left often share some analysis because they both think liberals are hypocrites, <laughs> you know, and and there is, in fact, a leftist group who are interested in Schmidt as well. There's a woman, I should admit, I haven't read her work, but a woman called Chantal Mouffe, who is an important left wing theorist based in London, who is apparently a big Schmidt fan. And I would imagine for the same reason, which is that Schmidt says liberalism is hypocrisy. It's all about power. It's you know, who controls power 
and what are they using it for? So, so yes, I, I think that's right. And I think that's, you know, we talked about liberalism's overconfidence. And I think, you know, but there's also a sort of crisis of confidence in liberalism. And that's partly because of internalization of some of this and saying, oh, well, God, maybe maybe we are actually all hypocrites and, and it is all about power and we are to sort of represent. So, so I think you saw that, for example, after the victory of Trump and so on, where there was a moment of liberal introspection. I mean, mainly it was just like, this guy's terrible and, you know, let's get rid of him. But there was also the people saying, well, you know, maybe there is something in this idea that these ideas that we were promoting actually were just representing an elite's interests. And obviously there's an element of truth in that. You look at income inequality figures in the US and the UK and so on, it's clear that there were groups that did very well in the heyday of globalised liberalism and others who didn't. So it's not a nonsense idea, it's just you can take it to slightly dangerous ends. Well, one quite robust defender of liberalism for, God knows, you know, 30, 40 years has been George Soros. Is that, do you think, why he has become kind of bizarrely, you know, the bogeyman of, you know, almost all of these strong men worldwide? It's very, very odd. I think so. I mean, I think that Soros has become a bogeyman for all of these groups for about two or three reasons. One is this emulation thing that we discussed, that it's like the Rothschilds, it's just a name you kind of conjure up. And when you notice that some figure like a Putin or an Orban that you kind of feel vaguely sympathetic with has said Soros is a bad guy and he's behind all this, then you might start to believe it as well, or at least find him useful. The second is that he is this sort of epitome of the rich globalist, as they would call it. He's a financier, he lives in the US, he also lives in Europe, he's got interests all over the world, he's Jewish, probably doesn't help. And so for all of those reasons, he looks like this sinister figure, you know, out of the books. But third, he also, the reason I think a lot of these people go after him is he's not just a theorist. He put his money where his mouth is. He literally did, you know, in the sense that he funded a lot of institutions, civil society institutions, that these strongmen tend to be uncomfortable with. So the first, I think, to go after Soros-funded institutions is Putin's Russia, because Soros funded, for example, Memorial, which was the group that tried to uncover the truth of what happened in Stalin's Russia. And that it's just been closed down definitively by Putin, actually, just after the Ukraine war. And they, Putin comes to believe that all non-governmental organisations are actually tools of the CIA, You're not all, but, you know, the ones that are dabbling in politics. And therefore, you know, we're not going to have them. Soros also early on got involved in China, trying to fund sort of civil society, rule of law institutions there gets booted out of there. Archetypally, he sets up the Central European University in Hungary, which is where he's from originally and had to leave after the war. And this is an effort to create a kind of Western-style liberal, great liberal university, liberal in the non-political sense, as in the sense of free discussion in Budapest. And for a while, it's a great success. But then Orban comes to see it as basically an incubator of opposition and of ideas that he doesn't like and eventually drives it out of Budapest. It's now in Vienna. And symbolically, like the year after CEU shuts down in Hungary, Fudan University of China, which has specifically taken a commitment to freedom of speech out of its constitution, opens up in a big new campus in Budapest. So yeah, and Soros is also, Erdogan despises him, and the Trump people really, really hate him. I think in the US, 
Soros hatred begins actually around the time of the Iraq war because he funds a lot of anti-war people. Uh-huh. Now, an obvious point about all these strong men is that there's only room for so many strong men in any given bar. And if they're all, you know, in, in general, looking to expand or restore great historical influence, they're going to come into contact with each other, conflict with each other, aren't they? How does how does that affect the dynamic? I mean, what what happens when you've got strong men who they have territorial ambitions in? Yeah, I, I think that is a, that is a danger, and I I think that you know archetypally you would say, you know, the strong men of the thirties, Hitler and Stalin, you know, they initially make a pact and then they end up at war with each other, and that's because it's a politics that's based around an individual and his preferences is a very unstable thing because those preferences can change, so. They can be best buddies for a while and then suddenly turn on each other. You've had a, an element of that in Russia, Turkey, so that Erdogan and Putin talk to each other a lot, you know, in some ways seem to admire each other. And indeed, after the 2016 attempted coup in Turkey, the first guy on the phone to Erdogan offering help is Putin. And that's one of the reasons that Erdogan then comes to believe the US is like, you know, behind it and and so on. But then Russian and Turkish interests clash in Syria and in Azerbaijan. And right now, Erdogan is really tilting a bit towards Ukraine, although he's trying to sponsor peace talks. So yeah, I mean, I think that eventually the expansionism, if if everybody wants to restore their old empires, you can see it's where it's going to lead. There's a joke that a Balkan specialist once put to me. She said, you know, the problem with the Balkans is we've got too many great countries. We've got greater Serbia, greater Albania and greater Croatia, and the results have been not so great. That's uh, what, you know, the, the danger you face. And how do you feel in the sort of longer run, what does the Chinese century, so-called, mean for strongman autocracy? Look, it could be that, you know, if Putin loses prestige now, that the, the strongman archetype will become Xi Jinping. Because he too has, as I said, moved China, even though it was never a democracy, in a much more personalised direction. You know, China's so shut off now that I think people have kind of lost a view of what's going on there. But there's a real personality culture around Xi Jinping. You know, his picture is, is everywhere. For example, during the Wuhan problems with COVID, when they decided that, you know, they'd solved it a year ago, there was a big exhibition in Wuhan, and uh, apparently Xi's figure was everywhere. It was him who had led China through this danger. But that actually also tells you one of the big weaknesses in strongman rule is that when things go wrong, there's nowhere else to turn. And that could be what's happening in Shanghai right now. The lockdown there is going on and on and on. The social order seems to be breaking down. And this is Xi Jinping's policy, the policy he is identified with. And that's why I think that You know, I ended the book and actually before Putin invaded Ukraine on a note of sort of guarded optimism, because I said that this is a terribly bad way of running a country because of the lacks of checks and balances, because there's no way of having a succession because of the dangers of megalomania. So eventually strongman rule will fail. The difficulty is that it it can often fail accompanied by violence, social collapse and so on. And that may be what we're seeing in in Russia right now, that I think that Putin will be discredited. But how you leave him out of power, I don't know. And it could actually, I think, be beginning to happen in China, as I say, with what's happening in Shanghai and COVID. I mean, that's too early to call the end of Xi Jinping, way too early. But I think this is probably the biggest crisis he's faced since he came in in 2012. Yeah. 
I mean, do you think? I mean, I'm wondering what what you think. The very public failure in Ukraine. I mean, you've said it could destabilize Putin at home. Do you think it will sort of recalibrate his emulator's view of how to go about being a strongman? It might do. Yeah, I mean, I I think that in a couple of ways. Firstly, he will have failed, and he was the archetype. And secondly, I think that a lot of the rhetoric of the strongman is not just I'm so strong, it's the West is so weak, you know, it's these pathetic liberals, so, you know, they'll tell you Biden is senile, Hillary is like, you know, totally corrupt, etc. Look at the kinds of leaders you produce. They're pathetic, aren't they? And look at our leaders, they're great. And that discourse of liberal weakness, I think, has also been a bit undermined so far by the first stages of the war, because the West, which both Xi Jinping and Putin have said is all washed up and pathetic, actually has had a pretty united and effective response. And, you know, is pouring uh, weaponry into Ukraine, has sanctioned Russia quite effectively, and Putin is not doing well. So the discourse of the strongman, which is that Western liberalism is all kind of washed up, for the moment, doesn't look so great. But I think that one of the things of writing a book, you know, that tries to take a span of a couple of decades, is you have to be aware of how ephemeral these moods can be. So it's possible that that in six months' time it'll look very different. Yeah. Now, funny because you you rightly said we should we should talk about it. I would just like to ask you what you know. You put Boris Johnson in there. Now, what is the explanation of that? Because, for instance, you know, the strong men in your books are all about you know, suppressing the free press and so on. And he doesn't seem to, I mean, apart from moaning about the BBC a bit and privatising Channel 4, it's not quite throwing journalists in jail. I agree, and I I thought about it hard. I put him in there for a couple of reasons. The first was that I think that in 2016, the election of Donald Trump and Brexit were very much linked events. They were both part of this backlash against globalised liberalism. And I think that Trump certainly saw it that way. He was actually, oddly enough, in Britain on the day of the vote. And he said, we're going to win. You know, he actually said, we're going to have our own Brexit in the United States in November. And Bannon said to me that the moment he knew that Trump would win was when Britain voted for Brexit, because the pictures were similar. It was take back control, make America great again, make Britain great again. The voting banks were similar. It was, you know, Trump doesn't win any of America's big cities and Brexit doesn't win in London or mainly does do that well in Britain's cities. It's a small town or outside the metropole phenomenon. So I think they were linked events. And also it was really interesting for me because I travel a lot that they were very much seen as linked events outside. So that although however much the Brexiters might believe, and I think sincerely believe that they were liberals, actually, people like Dan Hannon certainly believe that, that was not how it was perceived outside. I mean, I remember slightly sort of sinister conversation I had with a guy called Fyodor Lukyanov, who's a big advisor to Putin on foreign policy, a smart guy, but he, he, you know, very widely read. And he said, did you see, we were in Moscow, did you see that Boris Johnson says that Brexit is a big support for liberalism around the world? Yeah. And then he just cracked up and just laughed because the whole thing seemed so ridiculous to him. Because from Russia's point of view, obviously Brexit was a great thing for their project of disrupting the West. That's what they saw it as. But then the question is, okay, actual behaviour, you know, can you really say this guy is as bad as? No, I don't think you can say he is as bad as at all, but I think he has elements of it. So that when Boris is outside, he's resigned from the government, 
and it's talking about why Brexit hasn't happened, he does use some of this deep state rhetoric, which is very Donald Trump. He actually said on LBC, people will think there's a deep state that's frustrating Brexit. And then that can lead you into, well, the deep state. What is the deep state? Well, it's the civil service, it's the courts. And that was, again, part of the whole Brexit thing. You know, let's just get it done if we have to break a bit of China and famously proroguing parliament, which was overruled. But then that also tells us that's where it touches the the sort of, you know, Boris is the guy who'll get it done. And this cause is so important that we can maybe break the rules a bit. I think where he, he then, to his credit, parts company from the strongman figures is that he accepts the institutional verdict of the Supreme Court. He may not like it. But what Trump would have done when the Supreme Court said, you know, what you've done to Parliament is illegal, would have said, well, screw the court. You know, they're biased, they're the deep state, etc. Johnson is an institutionalist in the end. And I think that's where he part of company. So you could say he doesn't belong in this company. But I felt that if you want to tell the story of the last 20 years, Brexit's very important international event. And he is the person who sort of personifies it. So I felt if I'd left it out, people would have said hang on, you know, you're ignoring what's happening in your own backyard. Where does that fit in? And I think it, it, it's part of the story, which is why it's in there. We're out of time, I'm afraid. But Gideon Rackman, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Sam. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you